Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And welcome to a very special joint episode of two shows that you hopefully love. One, The House of Pod. I'm Kaveh. I'm the host of that show. And it could happen here with my good friend, James Stout. James, hi. Hi, Kaveh. I'm very excited about this. This is a rare privilege. Yeah, I'm very excited too. We'll get straight to it. Um, just a quick reminder, if you're not following uh, one of these shows, if you're following the other, yeah, follow both. Why not? Yeah, and yeah. Uh, leave a nice review if you uh, like the shows uh, either way. Um, but we're really excited. So let's get straight to the episode. How's that sound? Yep, let's go. week i say this is a special episode and i'm usually lying 99 percent of the time it's not special but this week is very special it's, it's special because i've never done this before i'm very excited it's a topic i really have wanted to cover for a while but i'm going to be covering the topic with with a good friend of mine who has an excellent show and we're doing a joint show release thing and i've never done it it's like a marvel team up and i'm very excited for it <laughs> James Stout. James, I'm going to introduce you first. Journalist, podcaster, host of It Could Happen Here, which if you're listening to this on It Could Happen Here, you already knew that. James, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Yeah, um, I, I don't watch many superhero movies, so I'm now concerned as to which Marvel uh, hero or villain I would be. But maybe, um, well, sure. I was thinking more of the comics, but if I, have okay, to, yep. if I have to pin you to a character, it's Moon Knight. I think that's clear. Okay, it's gone straight past me, buddy, but uh, I'm sure. I hope, I hope that was... Yeah, Take okay. my word for it. It's cool. Yeah. It's cool. James, can you tell us a little bit about what we're covering today? Let's let's talk to our people about what, and then we'll introduce our guests, but let's tell yep. people kind of what we're trying to cover today. Yeah, of course. So I think we're talking about like healthcare in an indigenous context and how uh, we can both like uh, learn from and stand in solidarity with in indigenous communities when it comes to healthcare, I guess. Excellent. And to help us with that, we have two guests. We have a medical student at a little school called Harvard. Um, I think it's a liberal arts school out in the East somewhere. <laughs> Named Victor Lopez Carmen. He was the uh, prior elected co-chair of the United Nations Global Indigenous Youth Caucus. He is a member of the Crow Creek Sioux Tribe and also from the Yaki Tribe. Is that correct, Victor? Yeah. Okay, excellent. Welcome to the shows. Thank you so much. I'm honestly props to right, pronouncing all that right. <laughs> oh. oh yeah, no, your stuff I'm gonna get right. Our next guest, whose name is Molly, I'm going to probably destroy her name because that those are the names I have a hard time with. Dr. Molly <laughs> Hallweaver, is that correct? Correct. ER doctor at UC Davis, one of my favorite hospitals in the world. Is that also correct? That is correct. I work at UC Davis. So I guess maybe uh, we should start like... Um, if, if we want to start out by explaining maybe how healthcare... Like what 
things that when we look at healthcare in the indigenous context, what things we're we looking at that differentiate it from healthcare in other contexts, right? What what would be the areas that both of you guys think that folks who aren't familiar with this, uh, because sadly, I think a lot of the United States, they either don't think they know indigenous people or, or maybe they really don't um, like and we can explain that lots of indigenous people, most indigenous people live off res too. I think that would be very valuable. But what what sort of topics would we be looking at when we're looking at healthcare from an indigenous perspective? I think like when you look at indigenous peoples in the US, you think of uh, our, our traditional health system as well. Like that was what we always had. That was what uh, we've had for thousands of years. And the efforts to maintain the traditional health, traditional healing practices. And then you look at the Western health system, that the different systems we have access to today, including the Indian Health Service, which is unique to us, uh, tribal clinics, tribal operated clinics, and hospitals, everyday hospitals that anyone else uses. Because like you said, uh, the majority of Native Americans today in the US live in cities or urban contexts. Molly, let me uh, ask you, because people may be wondering, uh, how did you become involved with delivery of healthcare to uh, the Native American population? Yeah, thanks. I um, it's great to be here. Thanks for having us. I'm excited to chat with you all. Um, I kind of had a unique opportunity. I've always been interested in um, Indian Health Service as like a healthcare delivery system and Indigenous um, peoples. And when I was a I started fellowship. I did a global health fellowship and I started in 2020. So it was, you know, not a great year to be a global health fellow um, <laughs> for many reasons. And so I had very, you know, obviously we were on lockdown and work was hard and stressful as an ER doc. Um, and so we were trying to be creative in, you know, how we can uh, do, do this global health fellowship. And so I got in touch with a um, awesome physician, uh, Don Maggio, who is the ED director at White River, which is a Apache nation in Arizona. It's like three hours east of Phoenix. So he went to high, he was a Highland alum, a Highland DM alum, which is in Oakland, um, and now works full time at White River. Anyways, got connected with him and everything that was going on during the pandemic because as I'm sure you guys are all aware, and probably a lot of our listeners, that the Navajo and Apache um, tribes were had much higher rates of of COVID and of severe COVID. And so I went as first for kind of public health outreach. So I went and did some contact tracing and helped do, they did a really cool program of outreach in the community to go and check on the locals and we would go and check pulse ox so we'd see how high their oxygen saturation was and see how people were doing to try to catch disease early so that's how i kind of got into doing it and then um i loved it there and wanted to keep working and so i continued to moonlight which means i worked kind of as a locums um I don't know if I need to explain that for medical jargon, Kabe, but uh, I worked, you know, every one to two months, I would uh, fly to Arizona and work on the res for a week. Very, very cool. So, Victor, get, getting back a little bit to where Native Americans are getting their health care, um, what, is, what is your interest once you're done? I mean, when you graduate from, where are you? What year are you right now? I'm a fourth year, so I'm in my last oh, year. Oh my oh, wow. God! Good for you, buddy. How how you liking it? Uh, I'm liking it less. You like fourth year less? No, I'm not like like I like medicine. I still yeah. maintain, but medical school, like I'm I'm ready to be done with school. <laughs> you got senioritis? Is that what you mean? Pretty much, yeah. Fair enough. So you're a rising fourth year, or have you already matched? Uh, no, I'm a I'm a rising fourth year. I'm applying to residency now, so. So, so talk to us about where what you would like to where you'd like to go and what kind of medicine you'd like to practice. Honestly, anywhere um, that will take me. Just want to be a doctor, but uh, yeah, I, I really I want to go into pediatrics. Always wanted to help uh, and take care of native kids and back in the community for sure. I want to go back and be a community member again i've been gone for so long i feel like i've been only only able to go back for like you know breaks and things like that and it's it's uh it hasn't been enough 
for me as an indigenous person. So I'm ready to go back, be a doctor, be part of the community, um, be there for ceremonies, be there to treat patients. That's my ideal. I think one thing that's really interesting, especially and like we have this chance to talk to you, which we which we often don't have, is you mentioned like balancing like Western medical technology with indigenous medical technologies, right? And um, I'm really interested in in hearing how you would approach that for folks who aren't familiar or for folks who don't have uh, the knowledge of indigenous medical technologies that you might or you maybe have people who you go to for that. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh. I think it's important to just already start the conversation that so much indigenous medical technology has already been uh, appropriated by Western medicine as Western medicine, aspirin, for instance, uh, many traditional healing practices that were and are still find themselves seeping into the field of psychiatry or around parenting, mental health, uh, the way that uh for instance, that indigenous peoples, I think there's a there's a growing uh, understanding in the medical field about planetary health and the impacts of climate change on health. And a lot of that uh, has already been said and, and fought for by indigenous peoples for a very long time. And so there's already a lot of, uh, of stuff there that we're working with. And I think it's important to give indigenous peoples their flowers. But yeah, that I think when it comes to integrating on the clinical level, uh, it's going to differ from community to community. You might know, but uh, in the Pascoyaki tribe, the uh, the health division employs a team of traditional healers that come up, I think, monthly from Sonora, Mexico, from the villages. And Yaki patients can elect to see the traditional healers with or without a Western-trained physician. Uh, and they, there's a whole room where they have all these herbs and plants that Yaki people have been using for thousands of years. And I think that that's very beautiful. Uh, one reason we've been able to do that is because our tribe elected to uh, run their own health division rather than having the Indian Health Service run it for them. We had the, the capability to do that at the time. Not all tribes do have the capability yet. We had it, and I think it's been beneficial for us because it's given us more freedom to to bridge Western and traditional medicine in a way that works for us. the The Yaki system is a really great one. Like, and um, it, like people probably people won't be familiar with it. I'm guessing most people listening won't be familiar with it. But it's allowed the tribe to do all kinds of cool things. Like, in um, I've been involved in a diabetes prevention cycling program there for uh, ten years, something like that. Long, long time. Um, but there are things that that can be done because of that block grant or running their own system as opposed to having IHS run the system. Could you like because Molly, I think you're more familiar with like an IHS clinic model, right? Would one of you want to explain the difference between the two of those for people who aren't familiar? IHS versus the tribe, the Pasquayaki tribe run their own system. I think they get a block grant. I, correct me if I'm wrong, Victor. They get a block grant from IHS okay. and they spend that as they see fit. Yeah, I can speak to the IHS side, but um, for me, this and Victor, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it for me it was easy to. It's kind of similar to the VA for just for medical doctors to understand, in that it's a a, a set of money that the government sets aside for a certain population and v, veterans for the VA and IHS for. Um, natives and but there's obviously a disparity between even those two like per capita spending is way higher in the VA than it is um, on IHS but it's a yeah western system um, and all of the staff on the hospital like the reservation hospital or the Indian hospital are all employees of IHS so they're actually kind of like federal employees um, and we can kind of get into the weeds of it later, but there's you know a lot of turnover because it's uh, a sometimes it's hard places to live, and so and they're young, they kind of recruit young doctors, and there's a lot of turnover for the um, for the primary care doctors, and then in the ER where I work, there's very few board certified ER doctors, so it's staffed by non um, non EM certified docs. That sounds right to me. Um, the only other thing I would add is that the Indian Health Service. Uh, it's it's predicated on what's called the federal trust responsibility that's built over you know decades 
of Supreme Court precedents, smaller court precedents, uh, over the years that I think a lot of them were based in treaties made with indigenous peoples. And basically this means that the government, because of the harm, the oppression, the colonization that has been uh, dealt upon indigenous peoples across the United States, there's a, there's a trust responsibility for the federal government to sort of to do something about the lingering impacts. They have a responsibility to provide health services to indigenous peoples in the US. That was also in many of the treaties that were made with indigenous nations. And I think it does go over people's heads sometimes that, uh, that this is not a favor. This is not a gift. It's a responsibility based on centuries of oppression. And that that responsibility is not fully being met right now because the Indian Health Service is severely underfunded. Uh, the way that the, the funds are appropriated is unique to government healthcare programs. The way the veterans, for instance, uh, Veterans Affairs is appropriated is much more effective than the way Indian Health Service is appropriated uh, at the federal level. It might be worth explaining here just briefly that uh, not all tribes are federally recognized, right? And not all indigenous people are part of federally recognized tribes. And how would that impact their access to healthcare? Yeah, well, you know, federal recognition isn't perfect. It's a it's a really arduous process. And not all tribes are federally recognized. For those tribes who aren't, they don't have access to those services, uh, they, like the Indian Health Service or the Bureau of Indian Education, for instance, and many other federal grants that uh, indigenous peoples and indigenous nations can apply for or, or just automatically get. For instance, during COVID-19, there were specific uh, funding allocated for tribal nations. Those tribal nations who are not federally recognized, they wouldn't have had access to them. Let me uh, shift gears a little bit here and get to a question that is, I think, going to be very difficult to answer. And it's one of those impossible questions because there's so many parts to it, I'm sure, and it varies so much. But I'd like to talk a little bit about the major health issues that you guys feel are facing Native Americans right now and, and whether or not if they are at all different from the rest of the U.S. population. And then we could talk about what barriers there are to care in that regards. But um, we'll start with with you, Molly. Can, can you tell us from your experience working there, what are the major health issues that you feel may or may not be the same as the general population? Yeah, I think um, at the end of the day, it is, it's very similar. You're seeing the same, the same disease processes that you're seeing in the general population, um, but you're seeing uh, everything's a little bit more severe, I would say. Like there's more, um, there's higher rates of the chronic disorders like diabetes and hypertension, and it's kind of more severe long-term effects of the diabetes and hypertension. And at younger ages, I think that was kind of what more was most striking to me. You're seeing um, the long-term, the bad effects, the long-term bad effects at younger ages. You're seeing Alcohol use disorder is a problem everywhere in the United States, but on tribes, alcohol use disorder is much higher. Um, and again, like I, I was, it was shock. It was honestly shocking to see um, thirty-year-olds who had end-stage liver disease from alcohol use disorder. And I saw on some of the sickest people I've seen have been um, from my from my time there. <coughs> Excuse me. So everything just is you know, a little bit harder. And the reasons for that, as we can talk about, are like totally multifactorial, but are in line with poverty. Funding is a huge, like funding and poverty go hand in hand, education, um, and just the fact that, yeah, they've been oppressed for centuries. Um, but yeah, I think it's at the end of the day, it was the same. I was seeing the same things that I would see at UC Davis, uh, but I was seeing it on a more extreme basis, I would say. Victor? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I think uh, it's important to note, to sort of say that these problems exist all across the US because there can be stereotypes um, associated yeah. with our health concerns like that, that, that are attributed to the way that we live or our culture or just inherent to who we are. Like there's this prevailing, I think, notion that I don't know what came first, but I think 
in the medical field, I, I still hear about it like in class sometimes. They'll say like Native Americans uh, have the highest rates of diabetes or heart disease, but they won't say why. And it makes people think that, oh, like, are they just not catching on? Like, are, are they just living badly? And when you don't say why, it kind of, I think it, it, it creates a lot of ignorance and a lot of room for interpretation. Uh, so I think it's really important to talk about those background reasons. For instance, with diabetes, I think uh, a lot on a lot of reservations, there's no access to one traditional foods, which have been, you know, through policy eradicated through government policies over over the, the decades and centuries, and no access to healthy foods. These are food deserts, and at the same time. Uh, like Dr. Hall Weaver mentioned, there's poverty. So if you're trying to get healthy food, you don't have, number one, it's not on the reservation. It, you might not even be able to afford it if you can get, get off the reservation. Not a lot of people have, you know, not everyone has a car or the ability to to mobilize, you know, hour and a half to the health food store. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of the, that's just one example of like some of the systemic reasons why somebody uh, could get diabetes quite early. And there's also a lot of lingering trauma and mental health impacts that I think play into the high rates of alcoholism. Uh, a lot of, you know, in, in policy, there, there was, there were some early efforts to try to, uh, I think, to try to limit alcohol on reservations that we still see today. On some reservations, alcohol is entirely illegal on the reservation. But you'll see, you'll still see uh, businesses right on the border of the reservation just uh, camp themselves there, right on the border, knowing that these that the population is vulnerable. Maybe not knowing that it's because of the historical trauma and things, like, but but there's there's something there, you know. So there's still an aspect of being targeted there by something that that you know the community is is highly vulnerable to still to this day. It's a really interesting point that you you bring up uh, because I remember being in medical school and the, you know you sit in these lecture halls and some they would bring up like Native Americans being a high risk for all these it would, it would be like one of these little footnotes that would be in a lot of our lectures and that sort of thing they never explained why I mean medical school particularly then was wouldn't want to touch anything that they might see as a even mildly political issue even though not discussing it made it one really. Um, do you, you, you must be annoyed by this. Do you, does this happen to you? Like, um, do you, are you like sitting in your lecture class and then like the teacher will mention something about Native Americans and then all like the white students in your class just turn their heads and like, look at you to see your response. Does that, does that <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, that happens sometimes. Yeah. Um, you're like, what? Listen, usually yeah. I just like find a wall and I stare at it, <laughs> just, just anticipating it uh just looking in deep thought until it passes right smart. <laughs> smart student uh molly you're gonna add something i was gonna add to that victor that yeah just to highlight the food desert example during covid right the white river reservation um had one grocery store and during the lockdown it was only open you know from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Like it had really limited um, hours and that was their one grocery store for the entire reservation. And so it was just even, you know, during the pandemic, everything got a little bit worse, but yeah, they have very limited access to, to healthy foods for sure. One thing that I was like recently educated about uh, during a discussion about diabetes prevention was epigenetics. And, and like my I'm a doctor of modern European history so if I go off the rails at any point I'm gonna rely <laughs> on one of you three to gently guide me back uh but I found that fascinating the concept of like um intergenerational trauma and, and epigenetics and how that can impact healthcare today um, is that something either of you could explain to listeners who like me are, are relatively ignorant on it and that to the I, I can take this one, actually, oh, yeah. because <laughs> actually, it's, it's interesting because I did an episode recently about the intergenerational trauma uh, of uh, the Persian diaspora after the, the revolution and, and how this most recent set of protests sort of reignited this trauma. And excuse me, one of the 
one of the guests mentioned that there was a study in mice in which they looked at sort of epigenetics of stress response. They had pregnant mice and they like, they would give them the, the scent of rose blossom or something, and then they'd shock them. And then the, the mouse would grow to be really fearful of those shocks that are associated with the rose blossom. And then what they noticed was that like the children of the mice would also re respond poorly to like that same rose blossom scent, even though they didn't have the uh, exposure to it. And I looked into it. I I mean, because the truth of it is, I, I don't think you can inherit specific phobias. That just doesn't happen. But I, I kind of pushed back on that point a little bit. And I got a lot of messages from molecular pathologists <laughs> who were like, so you can't stress during pregnancy. Uh, it can be it can affect the DNA. It can affect the DNA, and that can that can be passed down. Changes in the DNA, disruption in the DNA. You can't inherit specific phobias or 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 fears or stresses per se, but it can clearly cause genetic damage when you have that much stress. And then on top of that, of course, we're talking about the 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 psychological impact it has on someone, and and, and then how they raise their children and how their children grow up. So it is, I, I agree, it's a very interesting subject, um, but I don't, I don't want to get any more molecular pathologist emails. <laughs> Molly, what were you going to say? I was going to say, I'm glad you took this epigenetics question from me. <laughs> you know, one thing about your, you're going back to what you were saying, Victor, about the situations that, that have sort of predicated this. Correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is most of the land that these Indian reservations are on in the United States, like, there's 326, if I'm, I read that correctly, is not on great land. It's like land that's like close to like mines or places where there's some sort of radiation or there's some sort of issue. It's not great like for growing uh, food itself directly there. Is that is that correct? Is that part of this? Correct. Yeah, I think a lot of it was it, the, the intention was to put indigenous peoples on land that wasn't as fertile uh, and that that's kind of goes back into what I was talking about traditional foods and how it's difficult. Uh, but I think, you know, I don't know if the science was all there at the time. And I think now uh, a lot of indigenous land, a lot of reservations uh, actually, they found out that they're, yeah, they're on like on top of big mines and like uh, things that the Western world finds really valuable. And so there's a, there's a shift almost to, uh almost you see it in like policies and lawsuits today to start trying to grab more uh minerals from the land that that uh that they actually put us on which they didn't think was valuable and now, now they're like wait there's like <laughs> copper under there um <laughs> yeah like a, a yeah. flat's a good example of that right exactly yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the uh, podcaster and uh, the rapper uh, Propaganda, Prop, I'm James, you probably have mm -hmm. met him. Yeah. You know, he he speaks about how initially they, they put the African-Americans uh, in the, the waterfront. They said, here, you're going to live in these places by, the, uh, by the, the ocean where you can't really grow things that well. And then after a while, they realized, oh, no, that's really valuable property. <laughs> and then they started <laughs> trying to find ways to get them out of there. It seems to be our, our national M.O. Um, it, can we get back to the IHS a little bit? So you guys have mentioned Indian Health Services. It's come up a couple times. And James, I'd also want to hear your, because you've yeah. worked there as well. I'd like to hear, like, what are some things that the IHS is doing well? What are some things that uh, need work and how? I just want to say the IHS, uh, I think they, they, they're doing what they can't. A lot of it they're doing what they well with what they have. Uh, I would say, like a lot of the issues are underfunding, and we don't exactly know how well. Like, did we don't really know the potential quite yet because they just don't have enough funding. So, uh, I think, like, I would just like to insert that caveat <laughs> into the conversation first. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I, you know, I only have experience on one reservation, and there, you know, every everyone is different for sure. I think someone might know more than me, but the Alaska, um, the Alaska uh, health system, Indian health system is still part of the IHS, but it's like kind of its own thing. And they are the kind of the gold standard for, or they're, they're kind of the, they are doing the best with what they have. And I, I don't know, maybe you guys know James or Victor that 
if they have more funding is probably a big part of it if they just have more funding um but they are kind of touted as the the leader in ihs right now i know but less about this than either of you i'm sure but um i know i worked on an nih grant years ago um with someone who'd worked with alaska native people and um they were talking about this promodores de salud model which i don't know if you guys are familiar with that it came from oakland actually but uh like it's a peer mentor model for health education that they had implemented there and uh, we were trying to get money to implement that and the yaki reservation didn't work um but uh shockingly um <laughs> but <laughs> um the that model that they use of like using people from the community to educate people from the community rather than like uh i guess you could call it like white men in white coats um worked worked very well for them and i think it, it's it's a very desirable model to replicate it's not that expensive either um and we were doing it with diabetes prevention right so like chiefly my thing is riding bikes uh, has been my whole life and so uh Hippies. just yeah, just a big old bike riding hippie. Um, but like it riding bikes is very good for you, as it turns out, which is which is <laughs> nice. Uh so um the thing that we've been doing with a lot of my friends on the Yaki reservation is getting folks uh helping them out with a bike and, and helmet and lights and all the things that you need, teaching them to fix the bike, right? And then having them uh go ahead and ride the bike and then like it it having them bring friends and family members to come back and ride the bike and, and and have a goal event as part of that and that's worked very well for us too so that model that they implemented has been super successful within this very small context of um get, getting yucky folks to ride bikes yeah just going off of that i mean that sounds awesome uh and i think one of the limitations of the ihs is that it's this huge bureaucracy so it's hard to do stuff like that like for instance at the yaki tribe i'm sure you know we're not the easiest job to work with, but uh, <laughs> but we're probably easier than the IHS. Yeah. Because <laughs> IHS, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and I think that that's a huge limitation. Like even if you want to do a study on the IHS, it has to be approved by like all of these government officials and bureaucrats, and uh, and I think that that makes it really difficult, and especially because. You know, and there's so many branches of the government that the Indian Health Service is just one small, you know, piece of it. Uh, and it's not necessarily one that's like heavily prioritized by the government. But there there are improvements that are being made. And I think in this last appropriations bill, uh, the Indian Health Service got like funded a lot more than it than it had previously. So hopefully we'll see some improvements. I think they're doing really well when it comes to uh, digital health, the integration of uh, of electronic medical systems. I think that made a significant impact uh, when that was introduced. Uh, and then... When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. You know, I think the Indian Health Service, like the model, does well in giving a lot of freedom to tribes to choose do we want to continue with the Indian Health Service or do we want to take our health system over and run it ourselves, but still use the same money that would have been used anyways? I think that's what a lot of the clinics in Alaska did uh, in terms of having like it's called 638 clinic or 638 clinics or tribal health systems. It's really cool what they did in Alaska because those are some of the most remote remote villages, you know, in the US. And uh, and I think that 
is something that we should be paying more attention to, especially, you know, when we're talking about, you know, we talk about Alaska, that they're remote, but a lot of tribes in other parts of the U.S. are maybe not as remote, but they're in very similar situations and that they're kind of disconnected, like on food deserts. Um, and I think the, the same model can be used, but not every tribe is at the place where they're capable uh, yet of taking over like the, the, the operations, the staff. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of work that needs to be done and every tribe is kind of in a different place. I'm interested. I'm interested. I, I think you were mostly tongue in cheek, but when you when you mentioned the Yaki tribe is not that easy to work with, what 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 do you mean? Like, is it <laughs> is is a is there a lot of different opinions? Is that why? Is there uh, is it hard to why is it hard to manage or why why would that be difficult? We're just very militant, um, and <laughs> I think uh, <laughs> I think we just you know we just do our own thing and uh, very and, independent and. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're just kind of like, I think I think we just have a very uh, rebellious nature in us. Like, <laughs> we're sort of, but uh, yeah, just really headstrong and like, we don't work the same on the same timeline. I think sometimes <laughs> it's like when, yeah. for instance, like, uh, <laughs> like I'll, I'll tell you a story. Uh, there was this uh, this shrimp farmer dude. Our traditional one of our traditional. Uh, spiritual leaders, political leaders, he passed away in uh, early 2000s. His name was Anselmo Valencia. And uh, they were bringing down, they're trying to introduce uh, shrimp farming in the traditional villages in Sonora, Mexico. So they brought this guy all the way down. He's this businessman and, uh, you know, he's running on on time. <laughs> and uh, they, they brought him down to the traditional authorities in one of the pueblos. And then all of a sudden, uh, in, in, right in the middle of the meeting, the snake, you see this snake on the floor go by. And then Anselmo Valencia, he's like, stop, wait for a second. And he grabs the snake and then he looks at it. And he says, we have to stop the meeting. I have to go back to Tucson. And this business guy is like, what the hell, yo? I just came from like Manhattan and I flew all the way. I'm in this <laughs> village. And like, and they stopped the meeting. And, and this guy's like, confused i think he got really angry uh and that never happened to him in a business meeting before but there was <laughs> you know a traditional aspect that i think we just put that above everything else um like during even today during times of ceremony like no one's answering emails no tribal government official is going to get back to you within that those like three four weeks because they're doing spiritual um practices and and honoring that so yeah yeah i get it I from my perspective, everyone is lovely and like it's nice to have a community where everyone cares about each other and like wants everyone else to be healthy. And like, that's great. There are times when like recently we did a live show to raise money to buy more bikes and uh, someone from iHeart was trying to get a W9 out of us. And I was like, nah, it's it's like Easter week. It's, it's not it's not going to happen. Like, um, like, it's just I did. But it's fine. You explain it. And like, I always attribute like. I'm not fully culturally uh, fluent, right? Like I'm a, I'm a guy from England. Like it was different where I grew up. Um, so like things- You're not Yaki? <laughs> <laughs> you, couldn't, you couldn't tell. Yeah, Stout is uh, it's right up there with Valencia. Um, but um, yeah, like I, I'm obviously I don't have full cultural fluency. So it's on me to kind of listen and learn over time well, rather than be, be frustrated and bulldoze shit. Well, you're—I mean, obviously, you're—you're you're very good at that, in my my opinion, from what I've seen from you so far. But I'm very curious, actually, from both James and Molly, like when you guys first started going to the reservation, what um, surprised you? Uh, what was different than you had envisioned? What you know? Because I'm assuming you got all your knowledge of what reservations were like, for, like from Hollywood, like I did. You know, what what was fact? What was fiction? Um, yeah, it was my first time like on a reservation. Um, and I think it was, it, it, it sort of felt like a, a little bit of a different, um, country almost like you're in Arizona and you drive three hours and you feel like you're in a really different place. It feels just a little bit different. Um, and just, it's beautiful. A, the one I'm on was, or the one that I went to is in White River, Arizona. It really is beautiful in the mountains um, along a river, but it's, you know, a lot of single story housing um, that are all kind of government cookie cutter housing. And 
I got to kind of go into the homes too when we were doing house visits. So that felt, I felt very like privileged and it felt special to be able to do that. Um, as a very foreign person, right. I felt, I felt like a, an outsider. Um, and yeah, I mean a lot, there isn't, they're not central heat for these house, some of these houses, lots of the floors were, uh, dirt, like not actual flooring on the houses. Um, so that was, I think, surprising to me because it seems like that is not something you think of when you think of America. Um, but that was that probably was like the most surprising. But then like the street dogs running around everywhere was kind of classic. I think that my first my first drive down, I like had to stop because like a pack of dogs went by, and that was kind of out of a out of a movie. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like obviously, I'm not American either. Um, so like no. I. I yeah, it's shocking. I actually am I'm from te- Texas. I just watch the Harry Potter films on repeat. Uh, that's how I learned to be a turf. Uh, no, um, I am not a turf. Uh, I, um, I don't think that needs. I don't think that yeah, needs. Yeah, no, yeah, 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 yeah. Those people should go away. Um, uh, I so like I didn't maybe receive a lot of that like sort of ingrained kind of. Like I'm British, right? We fucking did settler colonialism everywhere. I don't want to erase that for a second. Uh, but um, I, I, you know, I, so I would just go to the res to ride my bike through it. Um, Pasquayaki Res has nice roads, lovely bike lanes, um, and it's much smaller than like uh, the Tahon Autumn Res, which is next door. Um, that's the size of Connecticut for people who aren't familiar. And um, I know I, I'm from a part of England that's very rural, where people talk to each other. And that's the thing that I don't like about living in a town in California is that everyone just kind of lives in a little box and kind of moves around and uh, doesn't talk to each other. And uh, I, at least in my experience on the reservation, everyone is friendly and nice. Uh, most of the people I run into is friendly and nice. Um, and so I really like that. Um, first guy I ran into was a traditional artist, um, David Moreno. Uh, who does he runs an art program there he's a very lovely guy um and uh we just were chatting i think and uh i was trying to encourage i think i was trying to encourage him to come on a bike ride with me and like he didn't have a bike so then i was just trying to encourage like i was like maybe i could get some bikes and come back and i spoke to some people in diabetes prevention and and we got some bikes and came back but um it took like Obviously, people's houses aren't super duper fancy, but they're fine. Like people have some nice houses on the res. Like, uh, you know, I, I didn't grow up in a super fancy house, and and like it's, it's the houses are not that distinct from those that I see in San Diego. Um, the it's beautiful too. Like especially down, if if you go on the Autumn Reservation further down, um, we did a a ride there in 2019, and we went out the night before from the Yaki reservation with a group of us and we did like a big camp out uh, and then we we did a ride the next day. Their roads are not uh, quite as nice as the Yaki roads. We all got, we ran out of inner tubes because everyone got so many punctures. <laughs> <laughs> but like, it's, it's yeah, it's beautiful landscape. It's really gorgeous. Uh, I think the biggest shock to me was the donkeys. The 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 donkeys on the autumn roads or something else, like just, just wild ass donkeys that, uh, like at night it sounds like there's a murder occurring because <laughs> it just make these horrendous noises and like you puncture on your bike and you go for a little bit of shake it's very hot and suddenly you realize there are like 10 bottles like just uh just chilling there too so uh that that was the weirdest thing but like i don't know people shouldn't just walk onto reservations and start like trying to have their cultural immersion experience or whatever that's uh that's a bit cringe but um yeah, like people equally shouldn't think that it's a scary or different or dangerous place. Like Arizona feels foreign to me. Like I, I go to Phoenix and, and that mm-hmm. that is that is a scary experience for other reasons. Uh, yeah. But like, no, I, I, I've always felt very welcome and comfortable there. Yeah, if I can just add one more thing. Oh, sorry. Just I think the other that's a great point James but like the striking part for me too is that I felt very yeah I felt very welcomed um when I was there and they like have a very soft way of speaking and I'm like a loud annoying American and so like have obviously they're American as well but I've kind of a loud voice and they're very soft-spoken and so gentle and so um just like appreciative and I kind of for me I was like 
wow, that's just like amazing that you have the resiliency to feel appreciative when like, I don't feel like you should, you know, feel grateful or appreciative to me. Um, I thought that was like my, the most striking that I felt. Molly's so nice. She's like trying to apologize for being, listen, you're talking to two podcasters who like obnoxious is our nature. It's like part of our DNA and why we do this. You don't need to explain yourself there. Um, Victor, uh, you've already touched on this a little bit, but do you find yourself still still dispelling myths and stereotypes about Native Americans, even at medical school? Yeah, yeah, all the time. Uh, and, you know, we talked about the medical uh, misconceptions and 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 those things, but I, I think they're it's it's like like I said, I feel like the the American educational system it left so much room for interpretation. And what it did give was, and a lot of it wasn't true. But um, I think what I'm really battling is that people just the the level of exposure they have is is so minimal that they're coming into these conversations and discussions with with pretty much almost nothing. Uh, and so the average American knows very very little about Native Americans. And when I say that, I don't mean Native American culture, because I don't think anyone, any Native American really cares if they know our culture or not. In fact, they might even protect it. But we're talking about what is, what is the experience of Native Americans in this country? What happened? What were the policies? Uh, what are the issues that are still going on today? You know, there's it, the, the level of education, it's it's just not to the point where I find we can even have these discussions, the discussions that we need to have. So I think the most taxing thing on me is that whenever I talk about Indigenous experiences or anything related to Indigenous health, I have to give so much background mm -hmm. that every time I have to educate someone on, you know, what is colonization, what happened, uh, and the very basics of of I think that should be basic in this country uh the all these basics and by that time you know I think people have uh gotten so much information that maybe they didn't know before they get mm -hmm. overwhelmed mm -hmm. and and these things can also be very touchy subjects I think because we haven't been bold enough in the U.S. to actually just talk about them uh and I think people you know might be a little afraid to acknowledge these things and in, in somewhere inside. And I think what would have helped with that is if they were, you know, exposed to it uh, in, you know, starting in elementary school history, starting in middle school, high school, mm -hmm. all of these things I think will make, well, we need to start doing that in the educational system if we're really gonna make progress. Yeah, as like someone who teaches history or has taught history, um, I think that's very true. And sadly, it's only getting worse, like places like Florida, right? I'm making it harder and harder to talk about that. But I think when people come, certainly, so like I teach a community college course, an American history course. And I think when people come to that course, I'm in California, like many of them, for instance, could not name the tribe whose like ancestral and current homelands they are sitting in and learning. And then obviously, to understand those experiences you have to have a name for them right and if you don't have a name for the people then you're a long way from understanding i guess but it's something that's still desperately lacking in the american education system um, and it doesn't seem like it, people are pushing hard enough to get that rectified like it's uh yeah it, it's a very big gap even in places you know like you could be in, at school in Arizona, like you could be an hour from some of the biggest reservations in the United States, right? The Autumn and the, and the Navajo, and uh, maybe not an hour. Everything's a long way away in Arizona, but and, and and not understand anything about those people's lived experience if you're in Scottsdale. Yeah, in the Bay Area, I've grown up in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I didn't, I knew very little about the Native people that were here until my one of my oldest son had to do a project here in San Francisco on the Miwok tribe. And then only then did I learn, Oh my, Oh my God, they were everywhere here. You know, there's so much the Ohlone tribe. So uh, even, even here, you know, which is a relatively progressive, not Floridian uh, system, you know, uh, did I not learn a lot about that 
but I, I also, Victor, I also hear you like, yeah, I know it must be exhausting. And we appreciate you coming on to talk to us about it. James and I have talked about this before. It's it's something that I at least grapple with sometimes, like in terms of like bringing on guests, you know, like I want people to talk about these things that are difficult and and sometimes maybe even a little traumatic to like talk about. But there's this balance of like, well, I want the people who've experienced it know the most about it to speak about it, but also don't want to keep re-exposing people to like the same exhausting yeah. trauma every time you know it, it becomes a, a tough thing for for me at least to figure out and balance you know yeah definitely yeah i think um you know these podcasts are a great way to to do that to have these discussions because it it actually i think it takes away from the taxation because it hits a lot of people at once you know uh, and, uh, and, uh, and you know you listeners in the tens we have listeners in the yeah. tens victor <laughs> Yeah, we that's much a, better. Yeah, yeah, we'll do a QR code so you can just be like, "Hey, hey, check this out." Yeah, <laughs> that's a good idea. <laughs> Colleagues, yeah. Um, so, so Victor, I'm sorry. Uh, I have I have one last question for you. Uh, you know, you mentioned that you want to go back uh, and practice uh, on the reservation, be a part of the the community again. Do you plan on on bringing in traditional healing components to your practice? And if so, are you going to do specialty training? Is there like a a version of a fellowship that you will do for that? Yeah, I really want to do traditional practices. I'm not a traditional healer myself, um, but uh, I want to partner with them. I, I feel like I have the connections to traditional people to do stuff like that. Uh, one of the things like I really want to do is uh, try to do a lot of public health uh initiatives out, out of my practice like for instance i want to try to find ways to help people grow their own food start their own gardens do community gardens i really want to get our traditional foods up and running again uh and there's a lot of people already working on this what you know which is amazing uh, i just want to be of service to that effort and i think i think that is one of the most important things right now. I also really want to do like public health initiatives around language revitalization. Mm -hmm. I think language is so important when it comes to uh, the mental health of indigenous youth. Uh, indigenous, I, I believe that indigenous youth who know how to speak their language are more mentally strong uh, during the, the continuing tides of colonization that they face uh, in this Western world. If they have their language I think that that's huge in terms of resilience uh, as culture as well. I think, you know, finding ways to uh, to sort of support culture as medicine, culture as prevention, uh, participating in ceremonies as, you know, making it, you know, very apparent that uh, to, to your audience and to the world that 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 is protective of indigenous health, indigenous mental health. And so, the, you know, there's all these facets of traditional or traditional ways of life that were all very healthy to us. And I think a huge part of the battle is uh, that we're still having right now because of colonization is revitalizing those things. And then th those things, you know, the more that they're revitalized, the more that we decolonize, the healthier we're going to be. But at the same time, recognizing that Western medicine can also be very effective, too, if it's just properly funded and if the service is effective. And so that's the other the other side of the coin that I want to be working on as well. Oh, excellent, man. Yeah. One thing I wanted to touch on before we finish is because it seems relatively current and, and newsy, right, is and I think Victor made an excellent point that like colonization isn't a thing that stopped it's a thing that we keep doing uh like we not not we including victor uh but you know like we people like me um like uh the, the indian child welfare act right ICWA, um is a thing that the supreme court is is like set up to take a swing at um and I know that that is an area of great concern to many people. And I was just in a tribal building last week looking at uh, books for Yaki children, right, to help them stay connected with their culture if, if they're in a, in a family which is not a tribal family. Um, can you, if you feel comfortable, explain what ICWA is and then the damage it does to young people to be pulled away from their culture and, and sort of... Uh, mm. yeah like this little act of colonization that happens every time that happens 
Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because colonization is definitely continuing. For instance, we, t we think about the Black Hills in South Dakota and the gold mining, the gold rush there. Well, there's still dozens of, uh, of gold mining permits that are pending right now in the Black Hills. There, there are dozens of gold mines still operating there. And the Lakota and Dakota are still fighting for the Black Hills. Uh, that, it's just one instance, but you see that all across the United States. And I think when it comes to the Indian Child Welfare Act, that's another really good example. Uh, so basically, the Indian Child Welfare Act, uh, if, if, a, if a Native child is in the foster care system, uh, and the, basically it, it helps to uh, to support those children to find a placement with a family who is either who is from their tribe, uh, from their cultural background. And the reasoning behind that is because they to number one to uh, to stop the history of assimilation when it comes to taking native children from their families. And we, we know about that, you know, through the U.S. boarding school system, that was one example, but it kind of transitioned at a point once uh, once boarding schools were terminated, those forced boarding schools. It kind of transitioned into the foster care system, and at one point, a huge proportion of Native children were in foster care, and they were being placed with white families, and those white families were not exposing them to their cultural background, and that in itself was potentiating assimilation because that's another native child dozens of native ch children thousands of native children who don't know their language their culture because they've been removed from community due to systemic factors right and so this bill it doesn't it doesn't say oh you can only go with a native family it it helps to ensure that if there is a suitable native family from their tribe that, the, that they will get first priority because they know that culture is also very important to indigenous child well-being as well. So the, the, the battle right now is being brought on by this, this lawsuit that primarily handles like mining and oil companies, but they're taking this Indian Child Welfare Act uh, lawsuit pro bono because if you can get rid of the Indian Child Welfare Act on the basis that they're claiming it's it's racism, right? They're claiming that native people are getting some unjust preferential treatment when it comes to adopting native children over white people on the basis of race. Uh, where that falls short is that the basis of the Indian Child Welfare Act is that indigenous peoples are not a race. They're sovereign nations. They have a political status distinct from all other, any other race in the US. And that is the basis that tribes are arguing for. That, hey, we have this political status. We're a tribal government. We have the rights to raise our children. We have the rights to teach our children, to make sure they grow up in community with our culture. That's not a race issue. That's a political issue. That's a, that, that relates to our political status as a tribal nation, as a sovereign nation. And so they're going to be battling that in court. But if the Supreme Court decides that this Indian Child Welfare Act is, you know, racist or discriminatory based on race, it means that a number of other uh, bills, another under uh, of other things in the law that that, for instance, um, that exist due to the political status of indigenous nations have the potential to also be thrown out on the basis of racial discrimination. Mm -hmm. And that I think will, you know, will lead to a lot of, lot more land grabs, a lot more, um, a lot less services being provided, for instance, like the Indian health service, for instance, they might say, Oh, why do native Americans get this healthcare? Or they might, they might start taking down a whole, a whole bunch of other things that are really important to us. So it's really, um, it's a huge issue right now. It's a troubling time, and, and I could see how people in the past might have said, oh, don't worry, that won't happen. I think it's pretty clear that these things can happen pretty quickly, pretty aggressively now. I think the last yeah. couple of years have shown a lot of people that things can get worse somehow, you know, uh, and that these things can be taken 
uh, more and more can be taken from people that have already had so much taken from them. So I guess I like to finish off normally instead of just being like, here is some sad shit and just pointing to it and then kind of uh, like dropping the mic, uh, asking people how they can do something to stand in solidarity. So like if either of you want to mention, like, I know this Bears is Oak Flat, there are other attempts to expropriate and colonize indigenous land and sacred spaces and fucking border wall is bulldozing kumiai graveyards like as i'm talking to you um are there ways that people can stand in solidarity with indigenous communities i'll go first because victor will have a better answer than me and he can he can he can jump in after me but i think as um like a low level entry thing that people can do and it kind of um, touches on how trying to remove the burden on asking for education and doing the education yourself um, for that what people can do is just you can read books by native authors and that teaches you a lot of history and there's like some incredible native authors who are writing beautiful stories that are weaved with fact and fiction um, but books and then like uh, native media, um, Res Reservation Dogs is like a TV show on Hulu that is a really great show that everyone should watch. Um, so I think you can do some like easy things that just takes remove some of the needing to be taught to on yourselves, and you can just learn about what we're missing. So those are like very very easy. And then in terms of um, like just from my point of view as a as an ND, there are a lot of ways to to get involved because these, um, the reservations are chronically understaffed. They're just like rural medicine, IHS or not IHS, rural medicine is very under understaffed in, in our country. And so there's always opportunities for um, doctors to go and work and it's like valuable and amazing for us and for the community to be able to do. Um, so there are ways to do that through locum companies and directly through the, through the IHS um, sites. Victor? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think uh, I think conversation, you know, I, I would love if uh, white allies would talk to their family members and their friends. And I think there are a lot of moments where in these day-to-day -day personal interactions, uh, when na natives might come up uh, to stand up, like if you hear something that is ignorant you hear something that might be racist to stand up to the people that you know in your own circles and say hey no that's not correct uh to talk to your friends and family about what you learned with with regard to colonization or the issues that native american people face because i think some of the people that we listen to the most are the people that we love uh, our friends and our family and i think there needs to be a lot more conversation in those spaces, a lot more accountability, because I know that it can be very hard when when difficult things come up in, in those personal interactions to challenge someone. But I think that that is where that, that sort of thing can really move the needle in the long run. Uh, and I think that sometimes people just choose to stay silent and I would like that to change. Yeah, very well said. That seems like a, a fantastic place to uh, to close it here. Thank you both so much for coming uh, on and hanging out with us. Uh, you've been listening to The House of Pod and It Could Happen Here. Uh, let's get some plugs in for you guys. Can you, uh, let's start with you, Victor. Tell us where people can find you or uh, plug anything you want to plug. Uh, come to the res. Just ask for me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> original facebook yeah uh yeah uh my my instagram and twitter are uh velo carmen v-l-o-c-a-r-m-e-n very cool and molly i exited the twitter sphere after elon musk took over so i'm off <laughs> but you can find me in sacramento <laughs> <laughs> all right you guys have been so awesome uh, thank you both for coming on. We hope to uh, talk again sometime. Thank you. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a physician or other qualified health care provider for your specific health care needs or concerns. The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees. Details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.